So as we've been going through the book of Matthew, again, I, I say it a lot, but it's important for us to not forget it, about the fact that there's a Jewish man writing to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. And more so today as we get into this, this section we're going to be getting into where um, we mentioned last week the, the, with the triumphal entry of Jesus, I'm going to try to stay behind the pulpit today. i got a lot to share, and I, I just want to stick on my track here. Um, anyways, that is, he went into, the, into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry. Really, what was going on as well is that they were choosing their Passover lamb, and they were acknowledging him as Messiah who was to come. And so, huge event going on. Um, and so, the, I think the scribes and the Pharisees clearly... It hasn't missed them. They know what's going on. And so as Jesus comes into Jerusalem the next day, um, there's going to be this examination process that begins. Now, I say examination process, and that's what we're going to call this, the examination of Christ, of the Messiah. Um, but they, two different, two different concepts here. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're trying as as all, and the Sadducees, as we're going to see, the Herodians, all of them, um, who are anti-Jesus as Messiah, they're going to try everything they can to find a blemish in him. Now, they're not looking at it as finding a blemish. They're looking at it as trying to find a way to prove that he isn't who he is claimed to be. From Exodus 12, what we talked about last week, with the Passover lamb coming in, remember the Passover lamb was chosen on the, on the 10th day of Nisan, but he wasn't, it wasn't sacrificed until the 14th day of Nisan. So those four days in between was a, a time of making sure that this, this sacrifice was going to be without blemish. So right now, the big event for Israel, the next big event for Israel, is finding the red heifer. Okay? They have had multiple red heifers, but they continually find a white hair on it. One white hair destroys it from being a, a without blemish red heifer. So take that concept into this lamb or um, goat that is going to be used as a sacrifice for the Passover, the Passover lamb. So as John looked out, and he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the lamb that is slain for the sins of the whole world. Okay? In order for him to be the sin sacrifice, he has to be perfect. So as we come in, we're going to see this a little bit later in the message. As we come into Thursday, okay, Jesus is going to be fulfilling multiple different roles. Okay? Now, as he comes then into the temple he begins to fulfill another aspect of Messiah. We have seen him with his authority. We have seen him with his power. We have seen him as a teacher. But we're getting ready today to see him as the prophet. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. All three in one. There have been kings who were prophets, but they weren't priests. There were priests who were prophets, but they were not Kings. No one has fulfilled all three rules. The only one who will fulfill all three rules will be Messiah. Okay? It's not going to be fulfilling his role as a priest until the day that he offers up his, his body as a, as a sacrifice. Okay? I think Thursday. You might think Friday. Some think Wednesday. That's okay. The, the idea is as long as he what? He died on the cross and he rose again three days later. Okay? So, today, we're going to begin looking quickly through this first aspect of his examination, and that is this concept of challenging his authority. Now, some of these things are all going to look like, how do they all come together? But they all have in common this concept of Christ or the Messiah's authority. And the first thing we see as Jesus is coming back into the city is that from afar off, he sees this fig tree, okay? And so, he goes to this fig tree looking for what? Fruit. But he doesn't find any, and he's upset. He's all mad. He has power because he's God. And so he just kind of curses the fig tree. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody who doesn't believe, but they love to use this illustration as Jesus what? Losing his temper. Yeah, no self-control. Because think about it. If Jesus was really God, he would what? 
He knew it didn't have any figs. Why did he go to the tree looking for figs if he knew? Didn't he see Nathaniel underneath the fig tree? Of course he did. So how's he going to this fig tree? So the point is that there's a whole lot more to this account than what we as Gentiles 2,000 years later read. This isn't about just prayer. This isn't about Jesus going and being frustrated and cursing a fig tree because it didn't have figs on it. First of all, and primarily, it is an allusion to Old Testament prophecies. We're going to run through this quickly, but you have them on your sermon note sheet so that you can go back and you can look at this even more, okay? First of all, Hosea chapter 9, verse 10 states, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing that they loved. Jesus begins his prophetic ministry, and what he does is he begins to bring Israel back into all the, 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 the words that the prophets had declared about them in the times past. We're going to spend time on this going through this today, okay? And so in Hosea, we're told, Hosea, God uses Hosea to compare Israel to the first fruits on a fig tree, okay? So Jesus goes to this fig tree. Does anybody know what time it is? It's spring. It's the time of the first fruits. Because, if again, if you remember, we talked about Leviticus 23. Jesus is fulfilling three of the first four um, feasts. These are the three spring feasts. And so, if you read those notes that are at the top of that, I've got a couple more of these if anybody needs one. Okay? Andrew can come around. Does anybody need one? Anybody want one? Okay, you can look. Anybody's got more of them. But those background notes that are at the top talk about the timing of all this. And how the Feast of First Fruits began to be placed into it. It's the first day, according to Leviticus 23, it's the first, first day of the week after the Shabbat of Passover. Okay? So you've got the coming in of the Passover lamb, but you've got Passover and unleavened breads, feasts going on, and then right there in the midst of it, you get the Feast of First Fruits. Okay? Why is the Feast of First Fruits there? Because there would be what? First fruits. Make sense? So, as your trees, if you've got peach trees and stuff like that, you begin to have some peaches on them, but you know that later on you're going to have what? A whole lot more, okay? And the idea of offering up the first fruits was a matter of faith. Because if you gave God the first fruits and then a storm came, you'd get what? Nothing. Okay, make sense? So, this is a feast of first fruits. So, Jesus is right here on this, probably on Monday what we call Monday, okay, probably on the, the, the 11th day of Nisan, when he's coming and he sees the fig tree. According to Mark, according to Mark, the, the disciples, when they go back on the 12th day of Nisan, the next day is when they see that it's withered, okay? Matthew says that it withers immediately. That doesn't necessarily mean that they saw it right then, but it withered immediately. They saw it the next day, okay? So anyways, so we see that from Hosea, but here in more in Amos 8, we see three things. And so I'm going to have the verses up here, but I'm going to give you a moment. If you want to go to Amos 8 and see this all in context, please do that, okay? In Amos chapter 8, there's going to be three things that come through in, in Amos about the figs and such that are, are very pertinent to this moment. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we read, Thus says the Lord God, uh, thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now, the summer fruit are figs, because those are the fruit that would come during the summertime. First fruits would be in the spring, but it would be a summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then Yahweh said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. So, according to Yahweh, Yahweh calls Israel this summer fruit, this figs, in this basket of summer fruit, is going to be a, a, a picture of judgment upon Israel, okay? And so God says, this is happening. So I think that Yahweh, um, Yahweh in the flesh, Jesus, Yeshua, um, is referring to this prophecy as he begins to look at this fig tree, and then he curses it and says what? There's not going to be any fruit on you anymore because you are fruitless people. Okay? He's crying out a judgment upon Israel. Down in verse 9 and 10, this is kind of fun, so all in the context, I'm skipping the verses in between, but you come down to verses 9 and 10, and what you read 
And it shall come to pass in that day, in that day that this is going to happen, in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down when? At noon. And I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning. In all your songs in the lamentation, I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son. I will make it like mourning for an only son in its end like a bitter day. Well, lo and behold, what happened? Now, I think Thursday, you can, whatever, we can debate that in three months from now. Because I have a whole lot more data to show why I think that. But, assuming whatever day it is, what happened at the sixth hour, which is noon, on the day that Christ was crucified? Darkness came over the earth when? At noon. And it lasted for three hours, to which time Jesus then cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cried out, it is finished. And then he gave up the, the ghost, his spirit, and he died. And then at that moment, what happened? The veil was rent in two. What else happened? There was a big earthquake. Now, what, this is exciting. This is humongously exciting. Again, from the Jew, well, Jews don't necessarily consider it very exciting. But when you consider this from the Jewish perspective, what was happening at 3 o'clock? What else was going to go on at 3 o'clock? That, well, that's when the Passover lambs began to be sacrificed. Right. So they would have the first lamb that was sacrificed for the nation. Then people would begin to offer. And there was just going to be massive offerings and sacrifices going on in the temple. Okay. Three to six o'clock in the afternoon was twilight. That was the time, Exodus chapter 12, when the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Right at that time, when they're getting ready to offer up that Passover lamb, Jesus dies. The veil is rent into two. The earth quakes. They can't do Passover. He turned their feasts into mourning. And they, they would cry as one's crying for what? The only Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so I think it's kind of fun as I read the book of Hosea that all these things playing out that are going on. We're not done yet. But then verse 11, immediately, so 9 and 10, then we go into verse 11. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Yahweh. Now, many applications of this are applied to the, the time between Malachi and, and John the Baptist. Because there was a famine for 400 years for the word of the Lord. But again, if you note the context, and if I'm right with verse 9 and 10, that it's an allusion to the crucifixion of Christ, verse 11 comes right next to it. When do you think the famine of the word of the Lord here as a fulfillment or second fulfillment would be? Contextually. Well, that, we talk Malachi to John, but this is talking about the crucifixion, right? And the only begotten. So this is coming after that. How about after the death of Christ? So for a period of 30 to 60 years, we had the prophets, quote-unquote, the apostles, who were declaring the word of God. And then all of a sudden, what? It ends. This is another one of the reasons why I believe the canon is closed. Why well, I don't believe that there is continual revelation going on. I think we're living in the days of the great famine, not the small famine. I think the 400 years was a small famine, but it was, it was a picture of what was going to happen. It's kind of like, so here what I'm going to say on this one, the Twin Towers. If you read the book of Revelation about Babylon the Great has fallen, has fallen, and you read about how the, the merchants were out in the waters and how they watch it and they start to cry, you can't... And I, I remember 
you, you cannot help if you were watching on that. I think it was a Thursday, wasn't it? No, it was Tuesday. Tuesday. How, how you just saw the world devastated. Okay? Now, I don't believe that was a fulfillment of that, but I do believe that it's a, a nice illustration of what that's going to be. Does that make sense? A precursor. So the time from Malachi to John is almost like this precursor of this famine of the Word of God. And I think that the famine potentially is then from the time, you know, the apostles and prophets, after that, boom, you've got this famine of the Word of God. Now, I say famine, but because of what God has done, it's feast or famine. If you're waiting for God to what? Give a new word. Make sense? If you're waiting for God to give a new word, then what? It's a famine. But God used the canonization of his word to make it a what? A feast. And from the days of Gutenberg, to whom much is given, much will be required. And yet, the world has all this spiritual nutrition sitting at the click of their finger, and they are dying of malnutrition. Think about that. Do you ever see, um, and it sounds cruel, and I don't mean it this way, but um, the people who are suffering from malnutrition, from hunger, their bellies are what? Bloated. They look like they're what? They look full, but they're dying. There's a lot of people in our world today, spiritually, who look what? They look like they're full, but they're dying of famine from the word of the God. Anyways, kind of fun stuff. We've got to keep moving on. Secondly, this impact of the fig tree is um, about the prayer of faith. I don't want to forget, miss what Jesus says here, because he says, because they're just full of wonder, like, whoa, what happened here? And he's like, guys, look, you got to get this. What I did to the fig tree is not a big deal. You are going to be able to do greater things as long as you what? As long as you have faith. As long as you believe. You can say to this mountain, be moved and cast into the sea, and it will be done for you. And so as we went through the time looking at prayer for six weeks before our week of prayer and fasting, we saw it's by his authority. I can't ask for anything except for by his authority. And so you have verses on your sermon note sheet. You can look at this stuff, okay? But Matthew 28, all authority has been what? Given unto me. Therefore, go. When I go to make disciples, I'm not going on my own authority. I'm going based upon his authority. When I go before the throne room of God, Hebrews chapter 10, how am I going before the throne room of God, into the throne room of God? By his authority, through his blood. It's not my own. It's on his. But then I turn around and then I can make my requests unto God, right? And Jesus said, ask anything and what? It will be done for you. If you ask in my name, I will do it for you. There are numerous verses. We went through all this. But we saw as well in 1 John chapter 5 that it had to be according to his will. So I say, Father, I'm asking this according to Jesus' name. He's going to turn to the right hand. And he's going to look at Jesus and say, Son, Really? Is this what you want for him? Gee, Dad, I don't know. That's really not what I was asking him to ask. And that request is next. Because you're not asking according by his authority, according to his will. Rather, you're asking according to your own authority, by your own will, if it's the stuff for you. If it's really according to the kingdom of God, it's going to be done for you. Now, what's the whole thing here? It's do you believe. So, by his authority according to his will, but it all is going to boil down to, do you believe? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to him, and I think this is not just salvation, but it's also for prayer. For those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Do you really believe it? 
James 1 says, let not that man ask with wavering, with doubting. Because he's going to get what? He's going to get nothing. But you've got to come really believing. There are numerous verses you can look at. But it's according to his, his authority and his will. We move then into this. He goes into the, the temple. Jesus goes into the temple, and immediately he's going to be confronted by the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're going to come to him, and they're going to challenge him with this question. By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? So these are very pointed, very calculated questions. They want him to say what? God. They want him to claim messianic, his, his office of Messiah at this very moment. They want him to claim that he is God in the flesh. Because the minute he does it, what are they going to do? Blasphemy, and they're going to try to stone him. Get him thrown out of, drag him out of the temple like they did with Paul, and they're going to try to stone him. Okay? Jesus, I love this. Jesus knows what's getting ready to happen, right? And so they ask her a question, and Jesus' response is, first of all, I'll ask you a question. If you answer my question, then I'll answer yours. Why? Because the minute they answer his question, what will they have done? Answered their own. They'll condemn themselves. That's exactly right. So he says to them, he says, so John, whence did his baptism come from? By whose authority, same concept here, so the Greek word exousia, okay? By whose authority, whence did John's baptism come from? Is it from heaven or is it from man? Is it from God? Is it on earth? Where is it from? What's the origin? Did he do it on his own or was he really a prophet? That's really the, you boil it down, that's really what he's asking them. Well, you know, you can almost see the, the, the eyes just, they, they got big, right? And they kind of turn around and blah, 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 blah. Rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. I don't know if you ever saw that, how they, the hubbubububububub going on, you know, but you got this whole hubbubub thing going on. And, and, and what are they saying to each other? We can't answer this question. He's asked us a more dilemma question than we asked him. If we say it's from God, he's going to say what? Why don't you listen to, to John? But if we say it's of men, well, the people, they believe that John was a prophet and they're going to kill us. Instead of us stoning him, they're going to stone us. So they turn around and say what? We don't know. We would call that a what? A lie. Because they did have an opinion. They did know. Now, they knew wrongfully, but they knew where they were going with it. According to what they believed, they should have said what? John, was, John did it on his own. It was of men. But they knew, they knew, inwardly, innately, they knew because there was this famine of the word for 400 years and all of a sudden you got a new Elijah coming. That God's message was there. But they didn't want it. And so they refused to hear it. And so Jesus then turns around and says what? Neither will I answer your question. That infuriated him. But I have this one little last thing here, applications for the church. Because I just couldn't go past it. Just watching Jesus again. He was ready. He was ready to give an answer. Now, I don't have the time to go into this. Just a real quick thing. He was ready to give an answer for the hope that was within him. Okay? Now, I know. He's God. But it doesn't matter. He lived an illustration for us as well. Mark 13 talks about the not worry about what you're going to say in that day because the Spirit will give you utterance. 1 Peter 3 tells us to be ready to give an answer. So there's a balance there. Does that make sense? I don't have to worry about specifically all the details. I haven't got to go through this whole um, uh, ritual of, well, if they say this, I'm going to say this. If they say this, I'm going to say this. If they, no, I've just got to study God's word, and I've got to be what? Prepared. I don't know how that question is going to come. I just know that I have to be prepared with God's word. And then if I am, then the Holy Spirit's going to go into this moral warehouse of mine. And he's going to grab a verse, and he's going to spew it out of my mouth. I can't tell you how many times that I'm preaching and I'll say something in the midst of saying it, I'll think to myself, wow, that's pretty good. I didn't think about that before. You know? And you laugh, but it's true. 
how many times, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to witness. You weren't planning on witnessing that day. All of a sudden, somebody asked you a question, and you're engaged in a conversation. The more you study God's word, the more you prepare yourself, the Holy Spirit will take that stuff, and he'll bring it to, to pass, okay? So, be ready to give an answer. Secondly, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, okay? The world may come trying to trip you up, but greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You are on the winning team. Now, you may not feel like you're the greatest evangelist or the greatest um, apologist, and you, you might not be. I'm not. But you know what? I know that the Holy Spirit dwelling in me is more powerful than any other individual who comes before me. And the only thing that they can do to me is what God has allowed them to do to me. And so if, they, if God allows them to do something to me, it's for his greater glory. That's hard for us to comprehend where we're going through persecution. But God allowed this, this altercation, this confrontation with his son. Why? So that they might know the truth. Sadly, so they might be convicted and condemned by their own words. The minute they said, we can't answer that question, what did they just do? They condemned themselves. My job isn't to go out and condemn people. It's to give them the good news. But when they choose to reject it or to abuse it, it's their choice to condemn themselves. So we move on. The impact of the parables. Now, there's three parables, and so that's why I'm kind of moving fast through this, because I want to spend some time on that last one as well. But as we come through these parables, first of all, we have the parable of the two sons, right? Jesus says, so I'm going to give you a parable. I'm going to give you a parable of, of these two sons. To the one, he said, go do this. And he said, sure, Dad, I'll do that. And then he what? He doesn't do it. To the second one, he says, do this. And he says, ah, oh, Dad, I don't want to do that. But then later he thinks about it and says, I should do that, and he goes and does it, right? And so, so which one obeyed? Which one did his father's will? Well, the one who obeyed. It's kind of, it was just a very simple illustration. But then he turns around and he applies it to them. He slams them with it. He says, you're the guys who said you'll do it, but you don't. But those ones that you're judging and you're looking down on, they rebelled against it. But when they heard the message of John, they repented and turned to God and began to do what was right. So, the key of true obedience, it's your action, not your intention. I meant to. The Pharisees, the scribes, they have good what? Intentions, at least according to the, the ways of man. Well, we're trying to be what? Righteous. We just want to do it how? How do they want to do it? Their way, not God's way. Does that make sense? That's, that's the hardest thing. I mean, you know, parents, you got kids, you go through this battle, right? But this is, I, I wanted to do it this way. That's not what I what? I told you to do. I want you to do A, then B, then C, then D. I don't care if you do all A, B, C, and D, but if you do C, then D, then B, then A you're not going to come out with the same product. Does it make sense? Okay. So your actions, key of true obedience, but the tr key of true repentance is where he comes down talking about those people then. It's a submission of self. Really, when it boils all down to it, what were the scribes and the Pharisees unwilling to do? Submit their pride. Say again, Gerald. Submit themselves. Submit themselves. They weren't willing to submit their, their pride. They wanted what they wanted. And when you think about it, this is what it all boils down to. Those sinners had to admit that they were what? Sinners. But it was pretty easy, right? I mean, you go to a jail, and everybody in the jail is a what? A sinner. They're convicted sinners. Does that make sense? It's, no, I know some of them think they're not. I, I get that. What, what were you going to say? Jail is I'm sorry, <laughs> You got a cop here. Jail, jail is pre-conviction. Prison is post-conviction. Okay. So in prison, 
<laughs> Technicality. He's going to be one of my, the lawyers sitting here with Jesus. Anyways, I'm messing with you, Hunter. But no, okay, that's a good point. So, so the reality is, so you've got people there who know that they're what? They're sinners. And I knew you were going to say that, because based upon the jail, working as jailers, I remember when Ben was doing that too, there's a lot of people in jail who said what? They're innocent. They didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> and every once in a while, there is one who is, who is innocent of the crime that they were um, uh, accused of. But as a whole, as a whole, even in prison it could be that way, but as a whole, when you go there and you minister, they know it. Make sense? The hard part is, when you talk to somebody who's not there, and because they've never been put there, they think they're what? They're okay. So when Jesus talks to the sinners, to the prostitutes and, and all that kind of stuff, they know what? They've broken the law. They know they're sinners. This is a no-brainer. Okay, talk about it. But God's grace is greater than your sin. Wow, this is an exciting message. I want to hear this. It's the people who refuse to admit that they're sinners. Do you realize it goes for us to post-salvation? We become like the scribes and Pharisees. We begin to think we're okay then. Because Jesus died for us now... We're good. We never make a mistake. I sin every day. I think I do. Probably do. I probably sin multiple times a day still. Just thinking that I don't sin probably is a sin. Anyways, you get what I'm saying? And, and you just got to come to the point where you realize that every day you are dependent upon the grace of God. If you ever get to the point where you think that, you've got it. You've made it. You're reaching that realm of scribe and Pharisee. Be careful, because they weren't willing to, to, to submit themselves, submit who they were, changing their intents. So I was very intentional in my use of intent, okay? Because up there with obedience, we always like to talk about our intents, but it was my intent. But when you get down to repentance, it really is all about your intents. Because it's down in... Do you, you know, do you have the desire to desire God? Do you get where I'm going on that? Do you want to want to serve God? That's really where the battle is. It's down there in your intents. What's your intent of your heart? We're told before Noah came that every thought of the intents of the hearts were what? Continually evil and wicked. Evil wickedly, continually. Every thought or intent of the thought of the heart. So it's like the, the down deep. You know, you got your heart, you got the thoughts of the hearts, and then you got the what? The intents of your thoughts. Where are your intents? Do you realize that God is the one? He's the word of God. is quick and powerful, sharp as a two-edged sword. And he divides asunder, discerning between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So down deep in your heart, there's stuff going on. God knows it. God knows everything about it. What is it with you? That's really where repentance is going to come from. It's going to start all the way down there, down in the depths of your heart. Do you really, really want to change? Or don't you? If there it is, then you will have the submission of self. When you have the submission of self, you will then move up on there to obedience. Because then you'll start to do the things. And that's where that second son was who said, no, I don't want to do it. And then he realized what? I need to do this. Move on. Parable of the wicked vine dressers. Now, again, I don't have a lot of time on this, but the leasing of the vineyard, okay, is really exciting. You can go to Isaiah 5. I don't think I have that on your sermon note sheet. But in Isaiah chapter 5, um, verse 7, we read, For the vineyard of Yahweh Sabaoth is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. And so, again, this is another allusion to the prophecies that the scribes and the Pharisees, they would understand this stuff. Okay? When Jesus is proclaiming this, the Jews would understand what he's saying. And so he says there's, a, there's, this, there's this owner of the vineyard, right? He plants his vineyard, and then he what? He leases it out. What do you think that's about? So if who's the owner of the vineyard? God. The vineyard is who? Israel. 
So what does he mean by leasing it out? It's interesting to think about, right? Okay, well, not at that point sharing it. We'll get to that with the wedding. Good. Yeah, he's entrusting it to Israel, okay, that it's only, Israel's only the vineyard because what? God gave it to them. He's ultimately, Psalm 24, the what? The owner of everything. All the, the earth is mine, the world and all who dwell in it, right? So everything is his. He's just allowing, leasing it to Israel. But apparently there's a, because then, Chuck, where we go with the, when he comes back to get the fruits, there must be an agreement, right? That so much of the produce goes to, to God. So when the time comes, he sends his servants. Who were the servants? The prophets. And what do they do with the prophets? They, they beat them and killed them. I mean, you read Hebrews chapter 11 to find out the things that happened to these guys. Some, one was stuffed into a log. We think it's Isaiah could be wrong, but stuffed into a log and cut in half. I mean, that's exciting stuff, you know? And, um, and so, beating of the servants, then, then the owner of the vineyard, God, says, I'll send my only son, okay, going back to the Hosea, or the Amos prophecy, I'll send my only son, and they will respect him. But what did they do with him? They killed him. Why? He says so in it. Because they saw him, and they said what? He's the heir. If we what? If, what warped thinking, isn't it? If we kill him, then it'll become ours. That'll hold up in any court, in, in, in courtroom, right? But th- we laugh. Well, I do, anyways. When I read this kind of stuff, but I think to myself, you know what? This so epitomizes the thinking of the world. We really think if we kill the heir, we might get it. He says, what do you, th- what will... The owner of the vineyard do. <laughs> they knew it. They came back and they said, what? Well, he's going to wipe them out. Then why are you doing this? Why, then why are you even doing this? He'll come and he'll wipe them out. Well, then Jesus comes back and he gives them the explanation regarding this then. And so he says to them, um, verse 42, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, This was Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, regarding the kingdom of God, it's going to be taken from you. Wow, this is a powerful statement. You think about Israel hearing this. The kingdom of God is going to be taken from you. In it's more powerful than what you read here, given to another nation. Because you read it in English saying, given to another nation, and you're thinking, okay, is it Egypt? Is it Assyria? Is it what nation? But literally, behind it, it should be translated, given to another people. Another people. Okay, and I can show you this. And many times, actually, the word ethnos is translated as Gentile or Gentiles. This was a statement <laughs> that Jesus is basically stating, and he's going back to Isaiah 9 on this stuff, okay? That, that God's going to take this kingdom and he's going to take it from you and he's going to give it to the, the Gentiles. He's going to give it to another people. You no longer are going to be the people. See, they didn't think of anybody else as a person. They were people because they were the people of Yahweh. Remember we talked about that? We talked about this little, little um, oh, what's the word I'm going with here? hierarchy of a caste system um, that they sort of had. Gentiles weren't people. They weren't people. I mean, they were part of God's creation. Again, have you seen um, Fiddle on the Roof? When, when the third daughter wants to go out with um, the Russian boy. What was his name? No, no, no. Laser was the, the butcher. That was for the first daughter. No, the... the he was humble. Just ask him. Um... Anyways, you know who I'm talking about, okay? So she goes to be with the Russian boy, who was Orthodox Christian, right? And so they're in the market, and, and, and Tavia sees her with, huddle. Huddle? 
No, no. That's, Hava was the second one. Hava. Hava. Hava was the third girl and she was with. Anyways, so he sees him in the market and he goes up and he says, what was you doing with him? She says, he has a name. I know he has a name. All of God's creatures have a name. All of God's creatures have a name. We love each other. Love! The bird may love the fish. The fish may love the bird. But where are they going to live? And the point is, you are the people. He's a nobody. You can't come together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What is light to do with darkness? What is Christ to do with Belial? It's the same concept we bring over into, the, into Christianity. But it's from the Jewish, Jewish side. It's a great picture that they were people. Nobody else was people. And Jesus at this very moment is telling his very Jewish audience, <laughs> my father's getting ready to give the vineyard to the Gentiles. Later in, in Luke's version of the end times, when we, when we start looking at end times, he talks about till the days of the Gentiles are complete. There's getting to be this time, what we refer to the age of grace, that Jesus refers to this as the age of the Gentiles. We're currently in the age of Gentiles. We are the people. The church is the people. That God was going to take it from Israel, and he was going to give it to this people. This is a huge statement. So this is God's plan. And Jesus is talking about it. I mean, this is really exciting stuff to me. That Again, he's the prophet at this moment, and he's declaring what's getting ready to happen in the days ahead. And these guys have a, have a choice. They can either receive it or they can reject it. So we then go into this last parable, the parable of the wedding feast, okay? And in this parable, the, um, again, you're going to have this wedding, but the father, if you would, um, he is putting this thing together, and so he has already put out invitations, but with a Jewish wedding, um, there's going to be this preparation for it. But only when the son, John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also is a picture of the bridal concept, Judaic betrothal bridal thing. That they would become betrothed, in a sense they were married, but they were betrothed, it wasn't consummated. And then the groom would go and he would prepare a place to bring his bride. When he was done preparing that place to bring his bride, he would then go back, whatever time it was, and so when we get into the parables of the... Um, of the, the virgins and their lamps and stuff like that, okay? They didn't know when he would come. They would only know, the only reason, only way, the only thing they knew was he would come when he was done preparing the place. That's why Jesus says, of the day and hour knoweth no man, only my father only. So when that place was done being prepared, then the son would go to get his bride. He would grab her. He would rapture her. He would harpazo her. He would snatch her. And he would take her back to his father's home where he had made the dwelling place for them. Isn't this beautiful? This is exactly, I mean, my, my, my husband, I mean, this sounds really kind of weird. You know, you've got to take it out of the American context here, okay? But Jesus, the groom, I'm part of the bride. He is preparing the place for me. And when he's done preparing my place, he's going to come back and he's going to take me home to be with him. And one day, he's going to have it all ready. It's, I mean, it's going to be all ready for all y'all and me. And he's going to come in, and it's going to be a big snatching, and, and we're all going to go in one big shot. And then there's going to be, Revelation chapter 19, there's going to be the wedding supper. The wedding supper. And so we have this wedding thing, this, this picture of this wedding supper is getting ready to happen. And he says to his servants, so go out and get him now. Go out and call him. It's ready. Bring him in. But the Jewish righteous, self-righteous individuals say what? Ah, no, we're, we're busy. We're busy. It's been such a what? Been such a long time. We're involved with other things. Thank you very much. We'll catch you on the next one. Could you imagine this? 
This is God giving the invitation, the calling. And so what's, what's really interesting is here is this is the perfect sense. Those who had been called, they had been called from the past. The, the calling was open. It was open. It was always open. God never closed the call. God never closed the invitation for them. But all along the way, they kept refusing to RSVP. <laughs> no, thank you very much. We'll go to the other gods. And so then he turns around and says, okay, they don't want to come? Go out and what? Call other ones. Present tense. Present tense. To the, to the, um, the servants were sent. Now they are being sent. And they are being sent to call everyone from the highways and byways to, to compel them to come in. Do you realize that we are those servants? Once we have responded to that invitation ourselves, we become those servants. Do you, that, that's our call, is to go out into the high, highways and byways and to issue the invitation. When, when <coughs> bless you, when, get rid of those evil spirits, brother. Uh, anyways, so when, think about it. When, the, when those servants went out the first two times, and in the, in the, in the ones who had been called rejected the call, rejected the invitation. Did, did the, did the um, owner take the servants and beat them up? He didn't. What did he do? He gathered his army and went and destroyed the ones who had been called and, and who rejected it. Do you get it? The servants weren't responsible for the response of the people being called. I'm to go out and do what? Issue the call. I'm not responsible if somebody comes or they don't come. I'm only responsible to send the invitation. But if I don't send the invitation, then it becomes my responsibility. Think about that. But then we get down to the imposter. This is really kind of interesting because now the wedding feast is going on, right? And, and, and the master comes in and he looks and he sees this one individual who doesn't have on the wedding gown, the wedding robe. And he confronts him. And he says, hey, how'd you get in here? Well, I, uh, uh, but, uh, but, could you, blah, 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 going on, right? Okay. And before he really gets a good answer out, what happens to him? Say again? He's tossed out here. He's grabbed and he's thrown into the outer darkness. Okay? And, and to the destruction that was, is awaiting him. Okay? He's an imposter. Now, this is huge. He was not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Again, that picture of the wedding supper, okay, is the wedding supper of Christ. He doesn't have it. He refused everybody. When, they, when, when you come to Christ, you are given. You are given a new robe. We should have ended with his robes for mine. And I thought about that this morning. I thought, I'm not changing it. I, I know, but we don't have the words out here. And so, but I thought of this morning as I was meditating on those again, but we're going to do it for, his, for, his, for the sake of his name. Um, but I got his robes. Could you imagine God offering you the righteousness of Christ and saying, Thanks, I appreciate that, but you know what? I think mine are better. I'd rather, I'd rather go in mine. That's this guy. Now, don't go too far with this illustration, because now people want to go to this illustration, and they want to do what? Say it again. Lose your yeah, lose your salvation, or even, how did it even get there? Make sense? How did it even get in there? That's not the point. The point is, even if you could, what? You can't. You're going to be seen immediately. I mean, even if you could sneak in somehow, you can't stay. You can't fake it. We fake it all this time. And, and, and people think that, oh, all I got to do is say the sinner's prayer, and I what? And I'm good to go. But all of a sudden, you're going to stand before the throne, and God's going to say what? You got the wrong robe on. You, you, you're, you're not closed. One final thought 
going through Zephaniah in my quiet time, Zephaniah chapter 1, it's really amazing how God is talking about he's preparing a feast, but it's a slaughter <laughs> in, in his judgment. And this is, I think, an allusion to Zephaniah 1 here as well, where he's going to go and he's going to wipe them out. And so instead of it being, um, but this is a feast of jubilation, Whereas that's a feast of judgment. And as we've come through all these parables, you can see that Jesus, the prophet, if you would, fulfilling that role, is declaring what to Israel? Judgment. You've been waiting. You've been waiting. You're playing the game. God judged you, brought you back. You've been playing the game again. God's about ready to do do the final installment of this judgment thing. And then there's going to be a famine. And there was a famine for over 1,900 years. Before God, Hosea chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. Before God revived his people. And the next thing we look forward to is that he will restore his people. It's exciting stuff to watch how all this plays out. So by whose authority are you doing the things that you do? I mean, if someone challenged you, by what authority are you doing these things? What's your answer? I mean, really? The things that you do, would you say, yeah, God wants me to do these things? Which son are you? Are you obeying the word of God or giving lip service? Have you responded to God's invitation? And if so, are you actively inviting others? Is there then a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness to us. You alone are the most high God. There is no other God but you. And God, you have had a plan from the beginning. Thank you for allowing us to be part of that plan. Lord, I... Don't rejoice in the fact that Israel had to be set aside. But God, I know that even during those days that Gentiles were allowed to come in to be a part of that promise. Though we were outside of the covenants, yet we were allowed to to proselytize ourselves into it. But even more now, Lord, you have broken down the middle of world partition. You have allowed us who weren't a people, quote-unquote, to now be a people that we might be your people. Oh, God, help us to to realize the privilege that it is. And, Lord, to act as your servants, to go out and to issue the invitation that there may be more and more and more around that great throne that we talked about earlier, giving you glory and praise, your worthiness, because of what you have done for us. Lord, help us for the sake of your name to go into this world and to share the message. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.